Town. Hope you all are doing well. You don't know me. My name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here. If you didn't know, at least most pastors, and I think Jimmy's in this boat too, um, we really don't like to hear ourselves talk. Believe it or not, uh, you might think because we talk for a living that we do, we really, really don't. So I had the unfortunate job of listening to myself this week, the, the video from last week. And the, the reason for it is this, um, I didn't want to repeat myself. Romans chapter 7 is what we're going to be talking about today. And the Apostle Paul does something that the Bible actually does a lot, which is to say almost the exact same thing over again. Now, educationally, this is a great thing, right? We need to be reminded of something. We need to hear something more than once. At the same time, it can make it like, oh, well, wait a second. That's exactly the way things worked last week over again. Maybe I just preached the same sermon. We'll just show the video. It all works out. No, but I am reminded of this, though. Um, Someone who's actually going to pop up in the sermon a little bit later, Martin Luther, the great reformer, A story goes that he was once approached by one of his students, um, and the student came up to him and says, Dr. Luther, Dr. Luther, I'm I'm really worried to say this. I'm scared even to approach you, but I I need to say something. And he says, yes, your sermons are are really boring. (laughs) He says, yes. I mean, I can just imagine Luther was this, you know, gigantic, somewhat angry lover of Jesus sometimes. And, um, and he says, why? And he says, well, you say the same thing every single week. And Dr. Luther says, yes, I do. And when you finally start listening, I'll stop and say something else. <laughs> and the implication, of course, was that we need the gospel every week. Um, So many of these things, they don't stick one time, they don't stick two times, they stick maybe after 20 years of hearing the same thing. And so, if nothing else, I need to hear the same thing we talked about last week, and maybe you do as well. So this morning, we're going to look at Romans chapter 7 and a little bit of chapter 8. And uh, Sonia, if you want to come and read for us this morning. Good morning. Uh, Today, our scripture reading is taken from two different passages in Romans. I'll give you a minute to find it, or it's on the screen. Romans 7, verses 21 to 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lives close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. We, wretched man that I I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of man. 
Our second chapter is from Romans 8, verses 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to all. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your deep patience that you, like our brother Martin Luther, would say the same thing over, to a, over and over again to us. Not just in hopes, though, that we would understand, but knowing that you are continuing a good work that will be completed at the day of Christ Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen. So as I said, last week we talked about Romans chapter 6, and we talked, kind of walked our way through a little bit of a chart that I put up on the screen, and this is the first piece of that chart. The reason I, I did this is because, as we said, Paul kind of makes a little bit of an assumption, or at least a half assumption with his readership here. Um, he assumes that they understand, or at least are thinking about, what's called eschatology, the study of the end times, but, but really the study of the whole story. Maybe it's, it's a little bit of a misnomer to say end times just means the end. It's kind of how all the pieces work out cosmically. And he assumes that his readers have, or at least have heard of, a somewhat Jewish understanding of that eschatology. And so this is how the story would have gone to most of Paul's readers, especially to the Old Testament Jews, especially even to those whom Jesus called to himself. God creates the world. We fall into sin. We're broken. We rebel. Everything that happens, happens. And then eventually, the Messiah comes. And the Messiah comes and the Messiah makes all things new. But as we said last week, Jesus kind of puts a little bit of a wrinkle into this because Jesus showed up just like thousands of years of prophecy said he would. He inaugurates this day of the Lord just like everyone expected him to. And then he dies. And even after he dies, everyone expects those who, who are listening to him, which actually wasn't that many, believe he comes back to life. And so when he comes back to life, everyone expects, okay, now, now you're going to inaugurate the kingdom, right? Now is the time that we're going to take over the Romans. Now is the time that stuff is going to happen, right, Jesus? Jesus says, no, instead I'm empowering you to go out and tell people about me. 
What about conquering people? What about the, the, the great and terrible day of the Lord, Jesus? No, I'm telling you to go out and tell people about me. It's literally what Luke talked about today as the Christian church celebrates Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit would come on the church and the church would go out into the world. And so this, over the years, be, began to kind of confuse people a little bit. They believed in Jesus, but they also knew everything they had been taught. So how does this work? And what we talked about last week and what we're going to continue to talk about a little bit this week is that Paul kind of says there are these overlapping ages, if you will, instead of there just being what's up now, Messiah comes, and then what happens after the Messiah comes, now we live in this middle space where the present age is not over, but the new age has already started. What we're going to do even more this week than we did last week, as I said, is to deal with this idea of, of what does it mean for us to live in this middle age or these, the middle of these two ages. Because the reality is living in both ages is hard. There are some things that are true about you. And there's also some things that are still true about this world that complicate the whole, the whole system. And that's what Paul is getting into. It's what he started in Romans chapter 6 and now what he's continuing in Romans chapter 7. Last week, he, he started off using a couple of different um, concepts, illustrations to help us understand this. If you were here last week, those first two words didn't come up as clear here. We've got death and slavery. So Paul in Romans chapter 6 says, you were alive to sin and then you died. You died with Jesus. And when you died with Jesus, when Jesus was brought back to life, he brings you back to life too. And now you're no longer alive to sin. Now you're dead to sin and you are a new creation who's in Jesus. He does the same thing with slavery. And again, we mentioned that was a little bit more indentured servanthood-esque slavery, that you were someone who was a slave to sin. But when you died, the contract was over and now you are alive to Jesus and you have the opportunity to present yourself as a servant to Jesus rather than to continue on as a servant to sin. Well, here in Romans chapter 7, he adds a third one to this, which is the idea of the law. And he says, again, in the exact same way, when you were living, and especially appealing here to many of the, the Jewish Christians who would have had this as a concept, but many Gentile Christians as well, you knew about this law thing. You believed it but you also felt the effects of it not actually changing you. The law itself wasn't doing anything other than showing you how badly you were failing. And this actually brings up uh, probably one of the most famous parts of this chapter in Romans chapter 7, where Paul talks about, well, let's begin. I'll just start reading in, chapter, in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if what I do, I do not want, 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For, what I, do not, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul bounces back and forth with this, who's on first, what's on second? Am I, you know, is this what I do? No. Is this what I want to do? No. Is this what I do? Yes. Is this what I, it, it, it can kind of wrap us up in, in, in a little bit of a confusing light. It's also one of the more, maybe not right, right word is not controversial, but debated passages among theologians. Because what they don't necessarily know is, is if Paul is speaking about who he is presently in Jesus or someone who is still here in the law. I'll be honest, I'm actually fairly convinced that initially what he's talking about is he's talking about this is the experience of somebody here in the law. That if, if you are someone who grew up not knowing the law of God, Earlier in Romans, he explains you, you wouldn't have necessarily known what was wrong. Now you still have a little bit of a deeper sense of right and wrong, and so you're still guilty before God, but how much more struggling are those who know what is right to do and they still don't do it? It's one perspective, and honestly, it's, it's where I think Paul is talking about first. But Paul does something really, really peculiar at the same time. And I understand why people have the opposite view. And so maybe I think they're right too. Because Paul switches pronouns. And at some point, he stops talking in past tense about a hypothetical person. And he begins talking as if he is the person who is stuck between these two things. I think that's significant. I think that's significant because Paul understands that even though he is not here anymore, the believer is actually already a new creation in Jesus. The experience of this is still our daily life. I mean, I don't know about you, but it very much sums up much of my life that what I want to do, I don't always do it. And what I don't want to do, I seem to continually be guilty of it. And I am frustrated by that reality. I think Paul is as well. Well, Paul also had some good company that we've already mentioned, a guy named Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther had a famous statement, a way of summing up the reality that we've just talked about here. And if you're good at your Latin, it's this, simul justice et peccator which kind of loosely translates to being both a saint and a sinner at one time. It's an incredibly helpful phrase. It, it, it is a phrase that was actually probably even, even more hard-hitting in Luther's day because Luther was raised, if you don't know about Martin Luther, he was raised as um, a, uh, a kind of wild boy, uh, kind of your, your sort of stereotypical frat boy-esque type person, um, who then has a near-death experience and in a, in a fit of fear 
commits his life to God as a monk. He commits his life to God as a monk, and uh, in the course of his commitment to um, that religious order, he also experiences the deep legalism and ritualism of his time. And so uh, already perhaps a very sensitive, struggling person, he begins to feel deeply that he is a failure before God and that nothing he can do will be enough to satisfy God's wrath against him. Um, No matter what, no matter how hard he scrubs the floors, no matter how hard he prays, no matter how hard he does any of the things that he could do, he will always be a failure. And then Luther discovers Romans. And he discovers the grace of God. And he recognizes that, yes, he is indeed a sinner. But how amazing is it that God's word also considers him righteous, justified, literally a saint. Which, again, if you think about the medieval context of the time, would have meant that Luther was saying the scripture literally takes the wretch he knows he is and elevates him to the same level as all of these iconic individuals that he had grown up believing were so much holier than he and so much better than he that he could never hope to be anything like them whatsoever. I think some of you all need to hear that this morning. I need to hear that. My heart needs to hear that. I I sometimes have this struggle of, you know, I know God loves me, but sometimes does he really like me? You know, I know that, that, that heaven is covered and, and I get to get there with him. And, and when I'm there with him, eventually he's going to come around to me. But right now, is he just putting up with me until then? No. Luther was able to show that, yes, yes, we still are living here in some respects. But praise God, we are here. Praise God, this is true about us, even if our sinful nature seems to still be there. God loves you this morning. He delights in you this morning, regardless of your awareness or your experience of your own sin. At the same time, though, theologians who would come later after Luther would struggle a little bit with Luther. Not at all saying that this is wrong, but that in the grand tradition of the Bible, saying things that can be true at the same time but are seemingly contradictory, this is true, and also this seems to be true. Because Scripture also talks about the Christian actually growing. For those who would come after Luther, it it caused them pause to wonder, yes, I am, I am a sinner and my sinful nature is not defeated until one day when I am with Jesus fully. I still have the capacity to sin. I still sometimes sin deeply. And yet, do I really want to say, you know, when I die after spending 5, 10, 20, 50 years with Jesus that, that I haven't moved an inch 
that there's no experience of growth, no experience of transformation, that I'm always just both of these things. And so other theologians would come after and try to stretch this further. And so in the same way, at the same time, today in town, I, I want us to hold on to this. And I also want to talk about what it means to grow, the question of growth. And I want to explain the question of growth with uh, what I'm calling three unclear statements. They're not false statements, but they're statements that maybe we throw out without a lot of focus. Here's the first one. The first, not completely untrue, but unclear statement is the concept that in the Christian life, we put in the work. What do I mean by we put in the work? Well, what we saw last week is very true, right? That even though we are indeed dead to sin and alive to Jesus, yes, we have already died. We are no longer a slave. We are now free. At the same time, we also have a present exhortation back in Romans 6 to present ourselves to God, to restrain the sin in us, to be active in our participation in our own righteousness. Well, I think that appeals to some of us, right? This idea of putting in the work feels, feels good. It feels right. Even if we are the type of people who might um, be afraid in some respects of falling into that legalistic kind of rut that maybe we've been in, we like the idea of participating. We're maybe wary of sermons or pastors that would consistently always only say grace, 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 grace without ever saying there's anything for you to do. And the Bible, again, holds that up. We saw that in Romans 6. We're going to see this again in Romans 7 and Romans 8 as well. But I wonder why that causes us so much pause. Does it cause us pause because we are wanting to be biblically faithful? Or does it cause us pause because as much as we love grace, there's just something in us that can't fully buy it? Like even if it's like 99% God, we believe that we've, we've got to do something. Now, maybe we believe we've got to do something because we think we're awesome and we can contribute. Maybe we, we feel like we have to do something because whether we like it or not, we again don't believe God could love us enough and we've got to prove to him that we're worth it. That might be you. It might just be the, the soup we swim in. As of today, the self-help industry in our country is an almost $14 billion industry. And that's jumped literally $2 billion in just two and a half years since we all got a little bit of extra free time with COVID. We are, in fact, more and more addicted to bettering ourselves. And, you know, th this trend really has started... You know, it's been around for, forever in some respects, this need to grow, to be better, but really accelerated towards the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries. 
I remember growing up and experiencing self-help for the first time um, in reading my dad's comic books. And on the back of the comic book, some of you might remember Charles Atlas and his mail-away kits to kind of get, get healthy, get muscular, um, which was really just going to be, you know, a, a couple of pieces of paper and maybe an extra rubber band or something. But, you know, it convinced me that I would not have dirt kicked in my face like the little shrimp that I was, but I would be strong. Since social media has popped up, it's literally become its own animal. And now you have influencers, individuals who literally their job is to show off how much self-help they have been able to give themselves, and therefore they can show everyone else how they ought to live as well. It's so much of an addiction that a few years ago in the Atlantic, um, one writer called it the toxic cult of self-help. I think some of us spiritually can fall into that as well, where we believe, yes, God loves me a little bit, but now this Christian thing is on me. And I've got to be better. And I've got to always be going to the next Bible study. And I've always got to be praying more. And I've always got to be doing more. And I've always, I've always, I've always. And we have confused physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion with Christian maturity. So when I say we put in the work, it is a true statement to some degree. It's a biblical statement, but it's also very, very unclear. God puts in the work. Here's another very biblical statement. Obviously, if I'm saying that, you know, grace, it's not 99% God and 1% us, it's 100% God, that mathematically equates to God does everything. But I think others of us can often fall into the pattern of so segmenting our lives that God has me spiritually and therefore whatever work, whatever effort, whatever thing I do with my life, it is wholly unconcerned with God. And so I can go on and I can worship God on Sunday, and then I can be a good businessman, or I can be a good healthcare worker, or I can be a good parent, or I can be a good whatever. Whatever work I'm doing in that area has no connection over here to who God is in my life. I've just sort of let my hands up and said, let go and let God. And sometimes that can be dangerous as well, right? Because then we, we sin, and then we sin again, and then we sin again, and then we sin again. And sometimes I think we can develop a, a frustration that leads to exhaustion, that leads to apathy, that just says, oh, well, I guess this is as sanctified as I'm going to get. God worked on me as much as he wanted, and, and now I'm here. And I think especially with age, that drags on as well, right? For those of you who might be a little older and have maybe dealt with some of the same sins over and over and over and over again. And you're like, well, I have already passed the magical age of, what, 17 or 35 or 65 or whatever the age is that says God is still allowed to change me and I don't change. No. 
when we read that God puts in the work, what we actually see is that God uses many, many different means in our life to be the one to affect change and make us more like him. It's like dating. If any of you have, have dated before, I remember one Valentine's Day, I bought Chrissy some roses. And I remember getting the roses and they were beautiful. And then I remember a friend of mine who gave his girlfriend like seven dozen roses. And I remember just feeling a little bit smaller and having the experience in my head of, oh, maybe if I only do more, that will equate to Chrissy loving me. But the reality is, right, that, that roses or no roses or number of roses or not number of roses was not what actually influenced our relationship. It was Chrissy. And it was her reception of them and her experience of that gift and their beauty and our continued intimacy together. That was what made that Valentine's Day so wonderful. Seven dozen roses, well, we might as well just fill the dressing room and do, you know, 30, 50, 100 dozen roses, every flower in the world. At the same time, I wanted to give my girlfriend some roses. And that also mattered. God uses the work that he is calling us to do. Do we want to pray more? Sure. Do we want to read our Bible more? Sure. Do we want to be obedient to him? Sure. It is God using those things that is actually what is transforming our hearts and our lives. And so, of course, we have a role to play. We don't throw up our hands and say, God, I hope you do something. Here's my life. It's actually, in some respects, why I think sometimes we have this overcorrection of just, you know, surrendering everything to Jesus. I mean, I mean, what Chris just said is not a, God, I'm giving you a blank piece of paper. I'm surrendering it to you, and, and I'm not a part of it anymore. No, it's now God saying, okay, well, let me write some stuff down on this paper, and let's talk. There's an active sense to it. The thing I want to talk to you about most, though, maybe the combination of these two things is the question of whether or not our growth in Christ is linear, or what does that growth actually look like? If we really can hold the tension together that such growth is all God, and we very much have a participatory element in it, with it still all being God, what does that growth actually look like? I think a big error we have is my graph. We think our growth in the Christian life looks like this. I was raised, actually, you know, in all honesty, I was not raised in an incredibly fundamentalistic home. Um, I was raised, there was definitely some legalism, but definitely not on the, the edge of what some of you experienced growing up, where you had a a very, very clear understanding of right and wrong and good and bad, and you equated such things with whether or not God loved you or whether or not mom and dad loved you or whether or not you were, you were accepted at school or at work or whatnot. I wasn't raised with that. I, I had a, a much more middling perspective. 
But when I did think about my relationship with God, I nonetheless still imagined this kind of experience. I actually remember multiple sermons from senior pastors and youth pastors and others that looked at sanctification, this idea of growing in Jesus like a mountain. And you were climbing the mountain. And there was even language for what happened when you kind of slowed down or when you tripped up. Backsliding. All right, some of you heard that as well. Some of you remember that language, that you, you had slidden back, you had fallen behind in your faith. Now, what was hard about this was even though I wasn't raised with um, a lot of legalism, the fear of backsliding, I remember, was a huge fear of mine. And it was a great deterrent to my growth in Jesus because it was all right, am I praying right? Am I doing right? Am I reading again? Am I doing enough? I started to fall into that spiritual exhaustion. When I got to high school and really into college and really into seminary and marriage, I realized that my path to God looked a lot more like this. And I think if we all sat here and talked, yours would too. So where does backsliding happen when you're falling down valleys left and right? When you're having to climb up cliffs that you've fallen off of? When you're also feeling well, but you're kind of plateauing and you're only gaining a little bit of elevation here or there? Like the, the analogy breaks down, doesn't it? But this is exactly what we see in Romans chapter 7. Paul experiencing both and great freedom, great growth, great maturity in Jesus, and also a continued experience of not yet being here. Paul knowing he's not here, but just being realistic. Here's how I want to encourage you this morning. And I hope if you've heard nothing else that you'll see this. Also that you'd forgive me, English and theater major about to explain a mathematical concept to you. <laughs> Linear growth is a mathematical concept that says that there is a value. And then in a series of numbers, we add something to that and we add something to that, and we add something to that, and the exact same amount is added each time. There is a growth that is the same each time. And if you, if you went to tech, just ignore all this. I'm, you know, I, no, it's, it's, I'm just hoping I'm not overly simplifying this. It was really, really helpful to me. But growth on a graph like this does not only happen on one axis. What I mean is this, when we look at a graph like this, as simplistic as it is, when we're thinking about growth, we're only thinking about vertical. Biblically, the Bible is much more concerned with the horizontal. And even if we throw our much more realistic graph up there, we're still looking at that. This is what I mean. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, you are being conformed more and more to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. 
God might be using your absolute failure to be obedient to him in the moment as a means of conforming you more and more to Jesus Christ. But you are being more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That means that at least at some level, you are growing in your maturity in Christ. Look at this from Paul. This goes all over his work. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being progressive, present tense, transformed into the same image, Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. And he can say that even though in a couple chapters later in 2 Corinthians, he can say, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The tension's right there. He says in the book of Colossians, don't lie to one another. An imperative, do something. Seeing that you have put off the old self, future with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being progressive, present, renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You need to understand that you're not doing as bad as you think you are. Now I say that again with the full weight of what we said last week. Stop sinning. Love Jesus. Believe Jesus. Follow Jesus. Respond to the gospel with your life. But do so, friends, knowing that your process of that response, as sometimes haphazard, as sometimes meandering, as sometimes absolutely falling on your face as it is, is not a failure before God, but is momentum that God is using to do the very thing you think you are not doing before him, which is to be conformed more and more to his image and to his spirit. I think this has a ton of applications for us. It has applications for us who are, are, are younger, who are you know, perhaps in the, the fervor of college or of the 20s and feeling like, oh no, am I going to make a mistake spiritually that will somehow you know, negate my faith forever? Maybe some of us have kids who have already made such mistakes and it feels like, will they ever come home? The promises of God are true. God is using even, come on, he used 40 years in the desert with Israel, Okay. For others of us, we feel just the, the pain of sin right now, the monotony of I keep failing, I keep screwing up. I feel the reality that I'm sitting on, standing on stage preaching before you guys, and I know, I know all the sins I, I sinned this week. I know what I sinned last week. I know as much as I try that there will be sin that I commit before next Sunday when I'm in front of you guys again, that that no matter how long I spent in Romans, I'm still going to struggle through? I think others of you are, are far beyond me. Um, 
some of you, you know, as much as we, our culture is addicted to believing that youth is the, the idol that we all fight for, some of you all feel your age. And you feel like whatever contribution you could have made to the kingdom of God has already passed you by. That your maturity in Christ, whatever it is, is, is kind of done. And at this point, you're just waiting for glory. No. God is even using that. That experience of waiting, that experience of exile, that experience of longing for home to build you up in Christ. I sound like a broken record, but that's why I keep saying, if you are older than me, I need you. I need to learn from you. I need to grow in you. This is why Paul can say at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, which is where we started this series and where we're ending it, or at least putting it on pause until we come back with the second half of Romans later. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How do we live in the middle of the ages, in the already not yet? One day at a time. Believing that every single day brings us closer to the day that God finishes the work he began in us in Christ Jesus. You are not a failure before God. God loves you. So let's put one foot in front of the other and keep going. Let's pray. Jesus, even as I preach that, I feel the weight of how hard it is for some of us to put one foot in front of the other and how trivial it might seem to say those words out loud. But you are greater than all our sin and all our shame, and you call us to yourself. You love us. You legitimately like us. You want us to spend time with you. You long to be with us and to have intimacy with us and relationship with us. God, would we know, experience even today that love, experience that lack of failure? Would you help us experience growth, feel it even just a little bit, that we might be encouraged? And God, would you help us take that encouragement and do something with it? To stop sinning, to long for you more but to know that even that more itself is just another component in what you're doing in us. We love you. We pray all things in your name. Amen.